Why does the Bible keep on saying that Jesus rose from the dead? It was an honest question that a friend, uh, let's call him George, asked with great sincerity and also great fascination. George was from another country. He had called himself a Christian. He had a genuine, a genuine appreciation for the Bible. And he believed in the Jesus who lived. He believed in the Jesus who died. But he did not believe in the Jesus who got up from the dead. And frankly, the situation was pretty awkward. I mean, not only did he call himself a Christian while not believing a very significant event recorded in the Bible, he was also a student at my same uh, evangelical seminary, a Bible-believing seminary. And he wanted to be a pastor of a Bible-believing church. So you can imagine this is getting you know, kind of awkward. So what ought I, his friend do in that situation well we had already at that point in time developed a good friendship Uh, he had known i believe that he was loved by me and my family and so i said you know hey this is a big issue this is not a secondary issue you should not be a pastor unless you believe what the bible has to say about the resurrection and so i offered to study the claims of jesus christ especially the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, and hope in the hopes of him changing his mind and the Spirit working in his heart to actually own the fact that Jesus got up from the dead. And in one of our studies, he repeated this question that had come up in the beginning. Why does the Bible keep on saying that Jesus rose from the dead? <laughs> and I just kind of looked at him and I said, well, have you ever considered that the Bible repeatedly says, like in the Gospels, that Jesus rose from the dead... Because God wants to make it clear to everyone where he rose from. And by God's grace, he just sat there and he was silent. And over the course of time, as we studied the Bible together, he actually came to own the true gospel of Jesus Christ. And he actually became a Christian as the Bible defines it. George thought that believing the resurrection was a secondary aspect of of Christianity and of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But according to the word of God, the resurrection is part and parcel of it. The resurrection is part of the enduring message of the gospel. One of the Christian truths of first importance. And we see this in our passage this morning found in 1 Corinthians 15 verses 1 to 4. I invite you to turn there with me now. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 to 4. If you find yourself sitting next to someone who might be visiting, who might not know their way around the Bible, feel free and help them find that place. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 to 4. This letter was written by the Apostle Paul in the mid-50s AD, and he was writing to a church in a city called Corinth. And they were a young church, filled with young Christians, and they most likely had some people who were working out whether or not they were really Christians. And they had questions about a whole lot of things, and one of those things was the reality of the resurrection. So go ahead ahead and look there at 1 Corinthians 15, uh, verse 12. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 12. And you see here, based on the context, what exactly is going on. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? So clearly there are some people in the, in the church, or at least amongst them, who were saying that there is no resurrection of the dead. And you look there at 1535, 1535. 
But someone will ask, presumably it's the, the, the group of people there, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? So you see that they have questions about what exactly goes on in the resurrection. and Is there even a resurrection to begin with? And it is into that context that Paul writes, helping to clarify for them the truths of Jesus Christ, the historic reality of his death and his resurrection and all of the hope that comes with it for those who believe in him. From our passage this morning, we see that the resurrection is inherent to the enduring message of the gospel. Look there at 15.1. I'll go ahead and read our passage today. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. Actually, let's just go ahead and keep on reading there. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach. And so you believed. From the first few verses there, verses 1 to 5, we see there the fundamental gospel components. If you're taking notes, you can just write that down, point number 1. The fundamental gospel components inherent to the enduring message of the gospel. And it is these truths that the entire church of God, every church, every true church, is built on. Look there at verse 3. It is that Christ died, that he was buried, and that he was raised. That's intentional there. This repetition of this trilogy of events that begins with that. Let me be clear, Paul says, this is what we preach. That, this happened, Christ died, he was buried, and he was raised. And this trilogy of events is what Christians celebrate on this Resurrection Sunday, and in fact every single Sunday, as it is his work, Christ's work, his death, and his resurrection that saves Sinners. It is the Lord's day, after all. If you're visiting with us, this trilogy of events summarizes the truths of salvation. The reason why Christ died for us was because we had rebelled against our God and Creator by sinning against Him. And in so doing, we were the ones who earned just judgment and God's condemnation. And we wanted to do what we wanted to do instead of what God wanted us to do. And so in so doing, we rewrote God's law, something you do not do towards a king over all. And being a holy and just God, God demanded our lives. But in God's grace and in his kindness, he gave us a way out here. Jesus Christ, in his death, his burial, his resurrection, God gave sinners a way to be pardoned from their sentence, and free from the punishment that they rightly deserve. So if you yourself have ever faced a judge in court, whether it be to fight against a speeding ticket or something even more serious than that, then you know what it's like to have a sentence hanging over your head. 
But here in God's kindness, he sends Jesus Christ, his eternal son, to take on flesh and to bear the punishment that we deserved. And he does this all out of love. He sends Jesus Christ to be our substitute where we consider, where we uh, perform the sins and acts against him. Christ himself bears that punishment. He bears the wrath that we deserved as our substitute. All because God loved us. His, he is merciful towards us and he has, is gracious towards people and he does not let them go. You know, many Christians understand the benefits of Christ's death for us. But in my own experience and in talking with other Christians, many of us don't ex- understand exactly the benefits of Christ's resurrection. So how does the resurrection of Christ benefit the Christian? Well, it helps us understand the benefits of the resurrection by thinking about what happens when we are united to Christ. United to Christ. So whenever the Bible talks about being in Christ or with Christ or Christ with us, that's all union with Christ. And the Bible speaks of so many benefits of the salvation, actually all of the benefits of salvation, coming to us as sinners because we have a new relationship with Jesus, because we are united with Jesus Christ. In the Bible, it shows that what Christ accomplishes and wins, he wins for his people. He does it on behalf of his people as our very own representative. So Romans 6, which we've looked at even recently, says that we have been united to him in a death like his. We were once enslaved to sin, but our old self, the Bible says, was crucified with Christ decisively. As Christ was victor over sin, we, in Christ, have victory over sin. Isn't that good news? Isn't that hope? For whatever it is that we might be struggling with here today, no matter how big we think that is, all that guilt that hangs over us, yet in Christ, we have decisive victory over sin. Of course, it's not because of something we did. It's all because of the grace of God and his love and his mercy towards sinners. Thinking about his death on the cross, just as sin could not hold Christ down, so in Christ, we will not finally be held by sin. Great hope. But not only have we been united to him in a death like his, Romans 6 says that we have been united to him in a resurrection like his. So our new selves, in the new life of Christ who reigned over death, we too live a new life. As Christ is victor over death, in Christ we have victory over death as well. And so even if we're staring in the face of a death sentence, We know that there's something that comes after. All because to Jesus, there was something that came after. And 1 Corinthians 15 is very much a chapter that explains so many of the benefits that come with being united to Jesus Christ. His death to sin, his resurrection to new life. Which is why it talks about his death for our sin. And if he didn't die, then we are still in our sin. So look there at 15.3. 15.3, for I delivered to you as a first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins there he's undergirding this death for our sins is a union with jesus christ in his death first corinthians 15 17 if christ had not been raised then you are still in your sins meaning had he not been raised from the dead we would still need to die for our sins and we would still need to be we would still be enslaved to our sins and we would never know new life we would still be in adam 
in Adam, our sinful father from the very beginning. We have his nature. We commit his same sins. And so look there at 1522. You see here this union of Christ idea. Are you, you can either be united with Adam or you can be united with Jesus Christ. For as in Adam, all die. That's in our flesh. That's apart from Jesus. That's rejecting Jesus. We all die and suffer the consequence, consequences of sin, including judgment and hell. But then it says, so also, in Christ, that's union with Christ, shall all be made alive. Christian, you realize that Christ's death and resurrection proves God's great love for you and reveals his joy in seeing your joy. God's sending of his son to die on the cross and then God raising him up from the dead proves God's great love for you and it even shows how God rejoices in our rejoicing right so so God the father sends Jesus Christ to the cross to bear our punishment that we deserved and as he does that it's not just this legal cold transaction it's Jesus saying you stay away from the punishment that you rightly deserve keep back and I will bear it for you And as he sacrifices himself in our stead, he is swallowed up by death. All the while saying, you keep back because I'll do it for you. And then he goes on in the resurrection. Christ then turns the tables on death and Satan and swallows up death for you. And as he is raised to new life, he takes us by the hand into the father's presence Winning for us new life now and in the age to come. It's not just a cold legal transaction here. It's saying keep away from the punishment that you rightly deserve. And then so Christ goes underground, is swallowed unto death. But then he reverses the tables and swallows up death. And in so doing, he holds us by the hand into the Father's good presence. 1 Peter 3 speaks of what is one for us through our living Savior. There, Peter says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has caused us, all by his grace and his mercy, to be born again to a living hope. It's not just a hope. Certainly not a dead hope. It's a living hope. And and how? It is through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So if you're visiting with us today and you know yourself to be a believer and you genuinely have been born again, you are born again. You can imagine like a baby coming out to a living hope because and only because Jesus Christ is living and he is not dead. That's the wonderful blessings, the love of God displayed as we are born again through Jesus Christ. Friends, as Christ willingly gives himself up, crossing over from the living, from life to death, he pays our ransom and frees us from punishment. But as Christ victoriously crosses back from death unto life, he seals death's defeat. And new life is one for all who believe. If you're visiting with us and know yourself not to be a Christian, not to be a follower of Jesus, you see how, if you're looking at your non-Christian friend's life, you see how the good news of Jesus, the gospel of Jesus, is really good news for those who believe? The facts that Christ died, that he was really buried, and that he really rose again. You know, these are not facts, but facts that carry with it an attending hope. 
There's always hope that comes along with these facts because if Jesus really did do these things, then that's a game changer. And indeed, all who believe have hope. And so this is why we celebrate this gospel, these gospel truths, not only on this Resurrection Sunday, but every Sunday because every Sunday is the Lord's Day, the day that Christ returned from the dead. And so Christians from the beginning of the church have been gathering on the Lord's Day to celebrate these great truths. Christ died, Christ was buried, Christ rose again. That's all point number one. Point number two, it's not uh, thinking about those who celebrate uh, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's not just us today, but it's the church from its very inception. Point number two, the true church of Jesus Christ has always preached Christ's death and his resurrection. That's point number two, the true church of Jesus Christ has always preached Christ's death and resurrection. So the summary in verse 3, I delivered to you of first importance that Christ died, that Christ was buried, that Christ was raised. These are the main points that Paul says there in verse 1 is the gospel I preached to you. Of course, the church preaches this message not because the events, not only because the events actually happened, but because of what they proved. The church preaches the events not only because they actually happen, but because of what they prove. See, anybody can claim all the stuff that Jesus claimed. In and of itself, it's not that remarkable for me to claim, as Jesus did, I and the Father are one. It's not that remarkable for me to claim, as Jesus did, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. These are all Bible verses here. Or, as Jesus claimed, destroy my body and I will raise it back up again in three days. You know, we can find... You know, a decent amount of people throughout history who have claimed all sorts of things. And typically, if you heard another person claiming all these types of things, you know, you would simply write them off. You would write me off as a nut job and just go on with your day, right? That's just how some people are. Unless, of course, I can back up what I claim with verifiable evidence. So for the skeptic, if the resurrection is true then Jesus becomes automatically somebody to be reckoned with. If uh, all of a sudden, if Jesus really got up from the dead, then everything he taught and said automatically becomes something to believe. And this is exactly why Paul preaches what he does, because it proves Christ's lordship over all things. And so that's why when Jesus was raised from the dead, and he ascended and then was seated at the right hand of the Father, Peter says God made him Lord over all. He is enthroned overall, finally, through his humiliation and then his exaltation. His resurrection proves Christ's lordship over all things. The fact that he is the divine incarnate son of God who came to save the world from our sins. You know, a great story of an atheist who went about examining the verifiable evidence, the plausibility of uh, the resurrection comes from Lee Strobel's story. You guys know this guy named Lee Strobel? He's written a number of books. Uh, you have, for example, The Case for Christ, The Case for Faith. And um, he was an atheist who was a journalist, and he had a law background. So he was the legal editor of a major national newspaper, the Chicago Tribune, right? So, you know, if someone's a journalist and they're after facts, they're after reporting what really happened, we would hope. And, and at the time, he was living as a hedonist. That is, somebody who seeks greatest maximum pleasure. Uh, and uh, then one day, his wife becomes a Christian. And for him, being a high-profile atheist, his wife becoming a Christian was like his worst nightmare. 
But over time, he started to see some change, evident change in his wife's life. And he thought it was attractive. He thought it was intriguing. And so he got curious and wanted to know more about what this Christianity was all about and who this Christ really was. And so he set out on a journey that took him a little bit under two years to examine all of the evidence evidence of Christ's death and his resurrection. And for him, too, the issue was anyone can claim to be divine. But if Jesus backed up his claim by returning from the dead, then that was awfully good evidence that he was telling the truth. So speaking to everybody here, whether you are a non-Christian or a Christian, uh, I hope you are saying that feeling the, the, the instinct to investigate the evidence and come up with your own verdict on the empty tomb. As if you are on the jury and you're examining the evidence. Because, I mean, it's pretty unique, right, that some dude actually claimed to basically be God. His disciples, regardless of what happened, his disciples claimed that he got up from the dead... And now millions and billions of people are either defining their very lives by this very Christ or giving themselves to make sure uh, that nobody believes in this Christ. It's very interesting, just sociologically speaking. I mean, all sorts of people have come up with theories for the empty tomb. And we're just going to go through some of them here. Uh, One option explains it this way. Uh, Jesus swooned, but he didn't really die. So it means he basically like fainted. And then he came back to life and then uh, escaped the empty tomb. So he was laid in the tomb, but then Jesus got out. And he disappears, and then his disciples go on believing that he died and rose again. But then Jesus kind of takes off. But if you examine the evidence here, this doesn't make sense. I mean, if you consider the crucifixion, Jesus really had nails driven through his hands. And non-Christians and Christians will attest to this. And he had nails driven through his feet with archaeological evidence. Proves that this was a method of crucifixion, and this is exactly what they did. He had a spear driven through his side. And so how is a man like that? I mean, if you've ever gotten a little scrape on your palm, you know that that's, uh, that's an interesting uh, little owie we get there. And it hurts more than other places because you've got to use your hands. And, or if you get one on your feet, then it's the same thing. How does a man like that get up and move a massive stone away? And then you, can just, you can just picture the scene. Like if that happened at all, Jesus somehow is moving the stone away. And it's a big stone, and it's not like it happens like that, right? So you hear, you know, if you open a door and the thing creaks, it's like, creak. And then it continues to creak for like five other seconds. Imagine the stone just, for like a whole five minutes while the injured Jesus is moving this thing away. And so somehow he tiptoes past the professionally trained guards who give their lives to guarding what they're supposed to guard. Some people here, myself included, know one who is professionally trained to guard things in the Air Force. And he gave his whole entire life to doing these types of things. And he took it very seriously. Not only that, though, but, you know, in the book of Acts, you see there that the Roman guards, if they lose their prisoners, they're basically saying, I need to die because all of you, you know, my prisoners have escaped. It's better for me to fall over onto my sword and die. So then the question is, well, what exactly happened here? The the disciples just thought that he died when he really didn't? just doesn't make sense. Another option, the disciples were deceived. It was really the Romans and the Jews who took the body. Some of you guys might be conspiracy theorists, and I'm sure you've heard this one. They were deceived, really. It was the Romans and the Jews who took the body, and they were the ones who hid it. But this solution, actually, is is, uh, not a solution at all. The Romans and Jews, right, they wanted him dead. 
and they wanted him to stay dead. Rome thought Christ was trying to set up a rival throne, right? And then the Jews, they, they thought that Jesus was guilty of blasphemy and they tried to kill him, at least for a, uh, for a few years, right? And so if you're wanting to make an example for everyone in your empire, or for if you're a Jew, for everyone who blasphemes, if you're wanting to make an example, you don't go and steal the body and hide it. You leave the grave exactly where it is so all of the bad people can know for certain your Jesus, who is leading a revolution, is dead and is right in there. You don't go move the stone away and say, have at it. That story doesn't make sense. Another objection, Christ was not the one who died. And there are different religions even. Islam claims that Jesus was not the one who died. Instead, somebody took his place. But this is unbelievable. This solution requires some sort of collective amnesia. You know, amnesia like you're forgetting uh, all sorts of things. You know, all of a sudden, the Roman leaders and all the soldiers who took Christ into custody, they didn't notice that the person they made carry the cross, the person that they beat, the person that they spit on, the person that they whipped, the person that they nailed to the cross was really a body double of Jesus. And then what about the Jewish leaders who had been trying to kill Jesus for years? You think they would give due diligence to find out if they're actually crucifying the real Jesus that they themselves want dead? All of a sudden they forget. What about Jesus' faithful followers who are actually in the crowd? Why are they convinced that Jesus was the one who died and not a body devil? What about his very own mother? It doesn't make sense. Another explanation? The disciples deceived everybody. Some note how difficult it is for uh, a myth, deception, a different alternate story to arise in the same city that the original took place. In the same city where you have all these people's eyes looking on the same event. But not only the eyes, you have the government authorities, you got the Jewish, you got the Roman authorities. All those eyes are looking at the same event and the truth and then a myth rise up from the same city. Highly unlikely. Not only that, though, you think about the way in which people write myth, right? If you're wanting to tell a lie or make up some story, you write it in a way that strengthens your case and doesn't weaken your case. And so there are a number of ways in which uh, uh, the, this, this scripture was written, and you can tell that it's not written in a way to strengthen the disciples' case. One example is how the disciples actually, if they were making it up, then they record that it was one like Mary who was the first witness to the empty tomb. But in that day, the general procedure was that women, women who gave testimony were not allowed, or actually the courts were, were to uh, dismiss the testimony of a woman. And so if you're wanting to, to validate your lie or to try and justify it, you would not have, at least at that period of time, have a woman giving testimony and being the first witness of Jesus Christ. We could go through a number of these things. Once again, uh, the New Testament documents do not read like myth. And so you have someone like C.S. Lewis who specializes in myth, reading the Bible and says, I, I, give my, I give decades to writing myths. I study myths. I teach mythology. And this does not read like myth. And then, of course, it goes against common sense. It goes against common sense. What's the likelihood of making something up knowing that their story would bring them persecution, deprivation, shame, ostracization? It just goes against common sense, and then, of course, it goes against the evidence. 
the Bible here, which is a trustworthy document that both Christians and non-Christians can agree with, that we actually have what the, what the disciples wrote. We actually have a true, reliable record. You have both people saying those types of things. We have a number of, of situations where Christ appears to different types of people. And so in 1 Corinthians 15, did you hear that in, in the last half of the verses there? You see that Christ appeared to all sorts of folks here. You look there, verse 6, or verse 5, he appeared to Cephas, then the 12, he appeared to more than 500 at one time. And then he goes on to say, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. He's basically saying, look, Corinthians, you can go and check. There are eyewitnesses that are still alive. Go and talk to them. And then he goes on, he appears to more and more of people. And, and this, this is just 1 Corinthians here. You can go back to the Gospels and see all the times that Jesus appeared. You can go to the book of Acts, for example. And the reliability of the New Testament and then seeing what it presents, all of these appearances, leads one New Testament atheist scholar to say, it may be taken as historically certain that Peter and the disciples had experiences after Jesus' death in which Jesus appeared to them as the risen Christ. That's an atheist, non-Christian, New Testament scholar saying, without a doubt, reliably certain, the New Testament authors had experiences after Jesus' death in which Jesus appeared to them as the risen Christ. Of course, the way that this guy, who does not believe in Jesus, explains it away, is the last option, is that the disciples had hallucinations of the risen Christ. They really wrote what they wrote. And we really have it. It's just, it's all based on a hallucination. And Strobel goes about how he goes and takes all of the evidence. He brought it to a very, very reputable psychologist, psychiatrist, and he laid it all out. And he asked him, could it be that the disciples had hallucinations? And the psychologist just simply said, point blank, no. The reason being, as many people point out, hallucinations are, not, are, hallucinations are like dreams. They belong to an individual, not a collective whole. To say that they all had hallucinations is to say that hallucination, that same hallucination was not just Paul's, but Martha, Martha's. You got the 12 disciples, you got the group of 500 that Paul talks about, and then you got the group that witnessed Christ ascending into heaven. So you got to take Paul, for example, was he primed, given his background, to see Jesus Christ and say, yes, that must be the risen Jesus Christ. That's a, that, I, I'm a witness to that. No, he grew up in Judaism. He was a hater of Christians. How exactly could he be primed for these types of hallucinations? The answer is that they didn't. I mean, all of these theories, Jesus didn't really die. Disciples were deceived. Someone who, took, who looked like Christ really died. The disciples deceived everybody. They all had hallucinations. These theories are less plausible than the resurrection. So I hope you, if you're visiting with us as a non-Christian, I hope that you examine the evidence, the external evidence, because all right there, we're just using logic to examine the external evidence. But I hope as well, and more importantly, you examine the internal evidence found in Scripture. The internal evidence found in Scripture. I mean, after all, as a Christian, I believe that the external evidence just, of course, is going to prove the internal evidence found right here in the Word of God. And so if you are reading the Old Testament, you read the Old Testament, it points us towards a future resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
And then if you're reading the New Testament, and you're reading about the resurrection, it points us back to the Old Testament prophecies there. I mean, Paul is aware that the resurrection is in accordance with the scriptures, isn't he? I mean, that's where he bases everything in. Look there at verses 3 and 4. Christ died according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised according to the scriptures. So you've got to ask the question, why exactly is Paul making this so clear at the beginning and the end of this trilogy of events? It's because he's making it clear that everything that took place in relation to Jesus Christ, which climaxed at his death and resurrection, was in accordance with the scriptures. Now here Paul is talking about the Old Testament. That's the scriptures that he had. But as we apply it to the New Testament, it gets even more impressive. The scriptures were written over 1,500 years. So the Old Testament, basically 1,400 years collected over a longer period of time, and it was written by 35-plus authors, all from different strata of life, but yet all carried about by the same Spirit, as Peter says, testifying to the fact that God saved sinners through Jesus Christ. I mean, that is impressive. Given this Christ-exalting trajectory, we see other apostles preaching the same gospel in accordance with the Scripture. So go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. And in this situation, Christ had already died. He had already ascended into heaven, been raised to new life. And Peter rises up to preach the gospel to the people who just crucified Jesus. And keep in mind, they are Jews, right? They want Jesus dead. And listen to what he says. He says, men of Israel, verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that Christ did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Now, he just made some crazy claims right there. Crazy truth claims. All these faithful Jews who had went up to Jerusalem for their holy feast days, uh, you know, as we know from the Old Testament, that's what they would do, you know... Take note of how he explains it to these Jews grown up in Judaism with the Old Testament scriptures. Take note how he talks about how his crucifixion and his resurrection happened because it was not possible to be held by it. Verse 25, for David says, it's not I say, it's not me and the other apostles say, it is David says who lived and wrote 1,000 years before Christ's resurrection. David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad, and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. This is Psalm chapter 16, a thousand years before Christ. For David says, but you look there at verse twenty. Uh, you look there at verse twenty-seven. It gets very, very clear, and Peter's logic is so clear. Thank God. 
If David is the one who is saying, For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your holy one see corruption, then who, who's talking there? Because David is dead. And he says there, look at verse 29, his logic is clear, Peter's. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this very day. But look at this. It's all accordance with the scriptures. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his own descendants on the throne, David foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus that David prophesied of in Psalm 16, a thousand years before Jesus came, God raised up and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing, that is the Spirit. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand, until I make your enemies your footstool. And look at this declaration he gives. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. It is all in accordance with the scriptures. The Old Testament, and then of course as they are apostles of Jesus Christ, we see Christ himself telling readers, telling his disciples, that this was all in the good plan of his own mighty father. Turn to the book of Luke. So go back two more books to the book of Luke, chapter 24. Here Jesus had already gotten up, to the, gotten up from the dead. He appears to his disciples. And they seem to be still sorrowful, not knowing where Christ had gone. They had known the tomb was empty. They didn't realize that Jesus had risen from the dead. And you look there what Jesus says. He finally reveals himself to them after walking a long time with them, with them on this path. Uh, it says there, and he said to them, he rebukes them here, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. That's the Old Testament scriptures. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And then look at that in 27. And beginning with Moses, that is the law of Moses, first five books of the law, and all of the prophets, that's all the prophetic writings, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures concerning the things concerning himself. And then he goes on, and then he appears a second time to a group of other disciples. And then you look there in 44. These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, which is a Jewish way of referring to the entire Old Testament, he says, everything written there must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, thus it is written. Where is it written? They don't have the New Testament. Where is it written? That the Christ should suffer on the third day and rise from the dead, written in the Old Testament. And that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. Friends, what Paul preached, what the apostles preached... And what Jesus did, they are all in accordance with the scripture. So, you know, again, if you're visiting with us as a non-Christian, have you studied it? Have you studied these claims of Jesus Christ? You recognize that this is a message for you if you would repent of your sins and believe. We see God's great love as he sends Jesus Christ 
to fend off the punishment that his people rightly deserve. And then he ushers us, his people, into the very presence of his good, good, and loving Father. Friends, this message of salvation is for you. So believe it. Repent of your sins and believe on Jesus Christ. There is salvation in him and him alone, in the crucified and resurrected Savior. Now, if you are exploring Christianity, uh, let me encourage you to give yourself to exploring this, to studying the claims of Jesus Christ. I mean, what greater game changer could there be? You know, a dude who claimed to be the divine God-man really lived and he really died. Both Christians and non-Christians acknowledge that. And the word tells us that he got up from the dead and the world testifies that his, all of his disciples really thought he did. When something like that, something that big comes along, it's for far more important than anything else that could be on your schedule. If the Bible is right, then the only person who can save you from your sins and to win for you new life, freedom from sin, right standing with God and forgiveness and justification and a new relationship with your good Father, your good Creator, is Jesus Christ, the one in whom all of our hopes are stored up in. You know, if you want to learn more, I would be very happy to study uh, this Bible study that, I, that I've done a number of times, and other people here would be happy to do it with you too. It's called Christianity Explained. It takes about six hours, six different sessions to explore the claims of Jesus Christ according to what he himself says in the Bible. Um, and for the sake of intellectual integrity, it would be a wonderful thing for you to study the claims of Christ before you actually reject it. So that way, if you're going to reject it, you know what you are rejecting. So we saw the gospel components there in point number one, Christ died, that he was buried, that he rose again. We saw in point two that the church has always preached this gospel, this crucifixion and his resurrection. The last point, point number three, is that the church ought never abandon this gospel. The church ought never abandon this gospel. This was the gospel that was preached by Paul and it was, as verse 1 says, received by the church. It was this gospel that Paul encourages the church to hold fast to. And with this language of delivering and receiving and holding fast to, you get this idea of chain of custody. So you have the, the Corinthian church, right? They're receiving it from Paul. But Paul too is a receiver as he received it from Jesus Christ, as it says there in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Christ delivered the message to Paul. Paul delivered the message to the Corinthian church. The Corinthian church, having the ministry of reconciliation, they too are to deliver it unto others. And friends, we as First Baptist Church are in the same place as the Corinthian church. We are those who have received the gospel preached by God's grace. Somebody preached the gospel to you. We are folks who are standing in the gospel right now. And now we are called to persevere in it. In fact, without persevering in it, clinging, hold, clinging fast to, the, to Christ's death and resurrection, we will not be saved. Now, I am not saying that we earn our salvation. Salvation is all of grace. But Paul says that, and Paul says very clearly that it is by grace you are saved. But Jesus too says that those who are true believers will endure until the end. So look there in verses 1 and 2. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you stand and by which you are being saved 
if, conditional clause, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. The point is, if you let these things go, you show yourself to have never been a believer in the first place. So that condition, if, is not meant to be a threat to get you to, to, to compel you to work harder at your salvation because you can earn it. That's not, that's not what the if is there for. The if you hold fast is there for, is there, because it helps us reveal where we are with God if we don't persevere. What does it say about our relationship with God if we don't persevere? If we deny the Trinity, if we deny Jesus Christ as the God-man, If we say that Jesus never died for sins, or if we say that Jesus never got up from the dead. Well, friends, abandoning Christ and his resurrection is nothing less than rejecting God's one and only plan of salvation. It is according to the scriptures. It is abandoning the truths of Jesus Christ is rejecting all that the scriptures point to. Abandoning Jesus Christ is a rejection of Christ himself. As it says there, that it was necessary that those things would be fulfilled. And the result of rejecting these truths is to consign ourselves to our own sin. It is to choose enslavement over freedom, eternal death over eternal life. This is why Paul says there in verse 17 of 1 Corinthians 15. Go ahead and turn there. Verse 17 of 1 Corinthians 15. If Christ has not been raised... Your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. It is as if they have already perished eternally. If Christ never got up from the dead because there is no hope. Hope is completely evacuated in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So what good is it to claim some Christ but not his resurrection from the dead? Rejecting the resurrection nullifies all of the blessings of Jesus Christ. Because all of them hinge on the resurrection of Christ. Lose the resurrection, then any notion of salvation is lost. And it leaves us there in verse 18. Crippled with only a temporary so-called hope, and we of all people are the most to be pitied. For friends, a dual hope of pardon from sin and new life is found in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Without him, we would still suffer the same curse as our first parents suffered. That is death. As 1 Corinthians 15, 22 reads, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. In Christ, friends, there is forgiveness of sins. Without Christ, without the resurrection, there is eternal death in hell. To conclude, the resurrection is not of secondary importance. We see there, 1 Corinthians 15, it is of first importance. For I delivered to you what I also received, that Christ died for sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he rose again according to the scriptures. This is the gospel message. These are the truths that churches of Jesus Christ, true churches of Jesus Christ, have always preached and will always preach. Christ's death and resurrection is not only what we celebrate, it is the good news that, in fact, we are commanded to bring to the ends of the earth as salvation belongs to the Lord. Let's pray together.
Our Father in heaven, Lord, we give you great praise. Lord Jesus, we give you great praise. And we acknowledge that there is power in your death and in your resurrection. Father, we pray that when we might be tempted to judge the scriptures or sit over them and determine what is true or what is false, Lord, we pray that you would give us great faith. Father, we pray that that our faith would never be blind, but that it would be based in historic reality. Verifiable evidence. Lord Jesus, that you got up from the dead. Father, we ask that we would know, as we as Christians would know, this great hope that we have. Lord Jesus, we recognize your great love for us. Father, we recognize your great love for us as you sent your Son to die on the cross in our stead. As you held back, you kept us back from the punishment that we deserved, all because you loved us, and so you sacrificed your very own self. And Lord, how powerful you are as you got up from the dead. And in your new life, you brought new life to all those who would ever repent of their sins and believe. Father, we confess in light of Jesus Christ's work, what else can we do? Our, any effort here that we can give to earning our salvation or adding to our salvation is nothing. And in fact, Lord Jesus, we recognize that it is an insult to your great power and work and all the things that you accomplished for sinners in your death and resurrection. So Lord Jesus, we pray that this gospel truth would be of first importance today in our lives as a church and then also as individuals. We pray these things for your glory and for your name. Amen.